must bring countries together to protect the southern ocean. Greening trade, ocean protection and governance. Greening agri-food, making agricultural production sustainable. The trade, environment and development nexus. Rethinking Europe. Hi, and welcome to Rethinking Europe, a podcast from Europe Jacques Delors, unveiling the nuts and bolts of environmental sustainability. My name is Gail Rago, and I will be your host. This podcast will combine both stories and perspectives of junior policymakers and European residents on one hand, and senior policy experts and EU decision makers on the other. The podcast is split into two parts, starting with the first-person narrative and followed by an interview. So let's get started. Today we are going to be talking about the EU trade and sustainable development policy and its impact on smallholder farmers and workers, especially in the global south. What were the big wins in terms of trade and sustainable development policy in the last four years? And what were the main shortcomings? What can we expect until the end of this mandate? And will the EU manage to conclude the EU-Mercosur agreement after two decades of negotiations? Join us as we answer these questions. I'll be speaking with Sergi Korbalin, who is the advisor on international trade for the Greens EFA group at the European Parliament. But before that, Virginia Ensler, who is the International and Institutional Relations Manager at the Fair Trade Advocacy Office, will share how she ended up working on fair trade issues in the EU. She will give us her views on the problems and risks associated with EU's trade policies, such as the implementation of the Deforestation Free Product Regulation and what needs to change to ensure equitable and fair trade for everyone. I'm Virginia Ensler from the Fair Trade Advocacy Office. I'm half Chilean, half German. I grew up in the Patagonia of Chile in a small city called Punta Arenas, the southest city in the world. Well, Argentinians may disagree and say that they have their southest city in the world, but that's not true. I lived until my 18th birthday in the south of Chile. Then I moved to the capital, Santiago, to do my university studies. I always wanted to be a doctor. But I didn't really make the cut to get into medicine school. So I thought, okay, let's give it a shot to law school. And it went quite smoothly. The five years of law school went very fast and then decided to do my master's in the Netherlands. I work at an NGO called the Fair Trade Advocacy Office or FTIO, where I work as International Institutional Relations Manager. It was always my dream to work at an NGO. The FTIO is the political office of the Fair Trade Movement and is based in Brussels. The FTIO speaks out on behalf of the Fair Trade Movement for fair trade and trade justice with the aim of improving the livelihoods of marginalized producers and workers in the Global South. 
So we advocate for public policies that can actually have a positive impact on smallholder farmers and workers in the global south who currently live in situations of poverty and precarity in most cases. My interest in working for social justice started when I watched the movie Turtles Can Fly in 2014. So when I was around 13 years old, if the math is correct. And what was the trigger in this movie for me at that age was to see that there is a whole world out there that I knew nothing about. And to see that there is a world floated with situations that didn't seem fair at all and where the most vulnerable people were suffering the consequences of the wrongdoings of someone else. That was the moment that I decided to devote my work to correct the course of things and try to achieve social justice. And that links to the vision that the FDIO has, which is a world in which justice and sustainable development are at the heart of trade structures and the practices so that everybody, through their work, can maintain a decent and dignified livelihood and develop their full human potential. From the beginning, I have been working on EU trade policy and agri-food policies, which was then expanded to trade-related measures such as the forced labor regulation, for example. I like to believe that my job does lead to indirect positive change for the smallholder farmers, workers, producers and artisans that we represent. Why? Because, of course, most of them depend on international trade and the EU is obviously one of the key trading partners. And so if the EU has better rules for its trading with other partners, then the actors in the fair trade movement can benefit as well. What we would like to see is smallholder farmers, artisans and workers actually getting a seat in the table where decisions that impact them are made. And we have seen this very prominently now with the deforestation regulation. People that are impacted by a situation are most likely the ones better suited to come up with solutions to those problems. And in many cases, this shall mean that the EU needs to consult beforehand and design together with trading partners the new regulations that the EU wants to put in force. One of the main challenges faced by smallholder farmers is the fact that prices do not cover the cost of production, less so the cost of sustainable production. Generally, the impact of EU trade measures on small farmers and workers in the Global South is that it imposes new requirements on them without giving them the tools to implement these new requirements. And less so by addressing the root causes of the trade system that has left farmers in a more vulnerable position. This last point was very palpable when discussing the forced labor regulation. This may very well mean, for example, to rethink aid for trade tools and or to rethink and reshape EU trade agreements. And that's my favorite topic. Our group of young people, the YFTAs, conducted a series of dialogues with the Global South to assess the impact of trade agreements 
And the takeaways from those dialogues did not point out to EU trade agreements having neither positive economic nor social nor environmental impact in the global south. And this means that then trade agreements need to be rethought. There is a need for what we like to call a fair trade agreement model, and that shall be one of the priorities for the next EU cycle. This should mean discontinuing extractivism models that have enabled the EU's green transition while impoverishing partner countries. In parallel, the EU should stop its dumping practices that result from subsidizing agricultural products in the global south. A second priority for the next EU cycle should be to have a global green deal that intertwines the global dimension with the current European policies. And that ensures three things, basically. The first one, that EU trade policy and trade-related measures are actual enablers for global fair and ecological transition in the EU and in partner countries. The second is to ensure fair access to financing tools for climate change mitigation and adaptation. And the third one is to have effective implementation of new EU legislative frameworks by upholding the policy coherence for development principle. As we have heard from Virginia Ensler, there remain several challenges in relation to how the EU's trade policies affect trading partners, especially from the Global South, who are expected to meet challenging criteria, but without the resources to do so, ending up in further inequality and the marginalization of workers. We'll now be speaking with Sergi Korbalin, who is the advisor on international trade for the Greens EFA Group in the European Parliament. Sergi is a strong advocate for fair trade and headed the Fair Trade Advocacy Office in Brussels for almost 15 years. Hi Sergi, hello and welcome. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself? Thanks Gail and thanks for the invitation to be here. I currently serve as advisor on trade for the Greens IFA group in the European Parliament. I'll speak here on my personal capacity and I've had experience in trade and fair trade in my past year. So happy to be here. Okay, great. So let's get started. Historically, we know that there has been a lot of skepticism regarding the use of trade policy and its instruments to pursue non-trade objectives, such as upholding labor and human rights, environmental protection, etc. So could you start us off with an overview of the EU trade and sustainable development policy? What are its objectives and why has it been controversial? Trade and free trade policy was seen as an objective in itself. And therefore, EU trade policy, but also the World Trade Organization, was set up to promote liberalization, let's say, at any cost. Now, with the years, there was more and more awareness that trade is not neutral. Trade can contribute in a positive way, but also sometimes in a negative way to human rights, to climate. And therefore, there's been more and more connections that have been made between trade and human rights, trade and environment, trade and climate change, which is, we believe, a positive thing. And the EU trade policy has been evolving. And now it's fully recognized that trade should be a tool to achieve the sustainable development goals. 
Great. That takes me very nicely into my next question. Until relatively recently, climate was a forbidden world at the WTO and trade was a forbidden word at the COPs. Yet there has been a strong growing recognition that international trade and the rules-based trading system can hold immense potential in driving climate mitigation and adaptation efforts. So in your view, what have the main triggers been of such a change? Why do you think this change has come about? And how do you interpret the evolution of the EU in leveraging their trade policies and instruments to promote sustainable development objectives throughout the years? I think even from a legal point of view, it doesn't make sense that a certain government commits to trade agreements on the one side or trade liberalization and then commits to other kind of climate commitments like the Paris Agreement and pretends that they are nothing to do. Same with labor rights. From a legal point of view, you need to read the two together and see what makes sense. So I think that's the legal argument. There is a political argument, of course, that there has been more awareness in Europe in particular about how we can make a difference in the way we trade with other countries in relation to worker rights, human rights, uh, the environment. And I think also there's been more awareness on the impacts and the relationships between trade and climate, for example. So not only from a legal point of view, but also I think there's more awareness that trade can maybe contribute to deforestation in certain countries. But also, I would say the other way around, that climate can also have an impact on trade. If you've got a drought in sub-Saharan Africa, well, it's not only a problem for those that live there, and this may lead to migration, but actually it's also a problem for trade flows and supply chains. And therefore, it makes all sense to look at trade and the other disciplines together rather than pretending that they are separate islands. Let's talk a little bit specifically now. I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the big wins from the EU in terms of trade and sustainable development policy, perhaps in the last four years. And if you could share a couple of key landmark achievements. There has been an incremental improvement in the level of ambition of how trade and investment policy should meet sustainable development objectives. An example would be that there is now a policy of the EU to put in place binding sustainable development and climate change objectives in bilateral trade agreements. That's a positive step. And there has also been a decision to leave the Energy Charter Treaty in relation to investment, which is a very important step to actually not facilitate any more investment in fossil fuels across borders and then kind of excessively protect the investors. So there has been various improvements. There has also been supply chain legislation that has been put in place. This is kind of a new generation of trade policy, which looks at what is the responsibility of companies in ensuring that they have a decent or a clean or green or fair supply chain. And this has led to three pieces of legislation that one of them is final, the EU rules against imported deforestation. And the other two are still in discussions between Parliament and Council, namely the Directive on Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence and a regulation on forced labour in supply chains.
On the other side of the coin, I'd like to now talk a little bit about the failures that you think of the EU's trade and sustainable development policies. What do you think have been some failures in your view? Well, there hasn't been enough change in EU trade policy to really make it an instrument to achieve sustainable development and, for example, to achieve the climate change uh, Paris Agreement. There is more of a need of a fundamental rethink about trade. Still, we have this perception that trade liberalization with some conditions is a good thing, when I think that maybe sometimes we would need to accept that in some cases, actually, less trade or more regional trade can actually make more sense. It's still a bit of a taboo, but I think it's unavoidable to have this in the future. That's very interesting. I'm going to jump now because, of course, the EU elections are coming up. Everyone is gearing up for that. How do you anticipate EU trade policies evolving in the months that are leading up to the elections? And what key initiatives or policies are EU institutions prioritizing in the lead up? Which files do you think are likely to be wrapped up or not? So time is ticking. And of course, the parliament, the council, they want to get a lot of job done before the EP election. So when it comes to supply chain legislation that I mentioned before, we expect the corporate sustainability due diligence legislation to be finally agreed with council, as well as the rules on forced labor. In terms of trade agreements, we expect a ratification of the EU agreement with New Zealand and with Chile. Now, other agreements that are likely not going to be ratified until then will be the the well-known agreement with Mercosur. Could you summarize a bit why securing a deal with Latin America or the Latin American bloc is so important to the EU and also why the agreement has been controversial and difficult to conclude? A trade agreement is an element to accelerate and increase trade flows between two regional partners. So therefore, you need to be very careful when you agree on a trade agreement, because once it's agreed, then it's very difficult to change. So the Mercosur agreement started being negotiated 20 years ago. And because of changes of government and political priorities, it's taken ages until it was finally agreed by the negotiators. But of course, the world has changed in 20 years. There was less awareness of the impact of climate change. And therefore, it is my opinion that really it's kind of a completely out-of-date agreement that doesn't meet the current societal expectations on what a good trade agreement should be. The Mercosur Agreement is sometimes referred to as the cars for cows agreement, meaning that it's an agreement whose main economic advantage on the EU side is the export of French and German cars to Mercosur. And the main economic advantage from the Mercosur side is to promote and incentivize the export of Brazilian and Argentinian beef produce there and imported in the EU. What happens is that we know that the increase of beef production automatically leads to more deforestation. In particular in Brazil, where the laws on deforestation are not respected, agreeing on the Mercosur agreement as is on the table would be de facto giving a green light, unfortunately, to deforestation. 
This doesn't mean that those that are in favor of the agreement want deforestation, but it is the reality of the economic impact of opening, let's say, the doors to Brazilian and Argentinian beef will lead to the incentives to do more production and so to increase the exports to the EU market. So that is why I think that it's about improving it so that there are sufficient guarantees that it is a good agreement. Thanks, Sergi. Could you give us a little more detail, for example, into perhaps one of the things within this agreement that you think could be changed for the better? What alternatives exist if an agreement is not reached with EU Mercosur? The agreement could be improved by actually updating the provisions that relate to sustainable development to make it sanctionable if our partner countries do not respect the sustainable development objectives or the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, that there could be a dispute settlement process that could lead to sanctions if they are not respected. Because that is not today in the Mercosur Agreement. So the idea is to really think through the clauses that will reassure us that, yes, we want to import beef from Brazil, from Argentina, but to make sure that if the government priorities change and if there is no attention paid to deforestation, to the population that lives in the Amazon and the impact that deforestation has on the environment and on human rights, that then we could activate this clause. It is very important to put this in place. It's better no agreement than a bad agreement. We do hope that the improvements will be introduced And by the way, we understand that on the Brazilian and Mercosur side, there is also some request to also update the agreement on some provisions that they find interesting, like on public procurement. We need to update a few provisions to match updated expectations from both sides. And this, I think, will be the only way in the midterm that such an agreement can be realized. Thanks. I think it's also very interesting to think about, of course, trade agreements from both sides and making sure that our partners are also, as you say, happy with it. Let's talk a little bit specifically now about the deforestation-free product regulation that you talked about earlier. We actually heard from Virginia NC earlier about the remaining challenges in the implementation of this regulation. As of last June, operators and traders will have about 18 months to implement the new rules. Where do you think we currently stand, Sergi? And what are the primary implementation challenges that need urgent attention in the next mandate? That's right. So the rules have been agreed. This is where we are. And now everybody realizes, oh, we need to comply with these rules. And the first problem is that the European Commission did not sufficiently involve, in my view, our trading partners and partner countries during the process of drafting the legislation. There was a strategy in deforestation, but then suddenly this piece of legislation was adopted relatively quickly. And now it's only now that they've realized the impact of this. And I think that explains why there is pushback. And I think that what we hear from countries is not that they disagree with the objectives of eradicating deforestation from the supply chains, but they disagree 
on the way that it has been done without proper consultation and also on the economic costs and regulatory compliance costs that it implies. Because one of the most practical things that need to do in order to comply with this legislation is to put in place what is known as traceability systems. Because otherwise, if you don't have a robust traceability system, well, then it's up for cheating, right? Now, it doesn't happen all the time. There's companies and there's countries that have traceability systems, others don't. And of course, in particular, least developed countries have a problem that, well, putting in place a traceability system can be expensive. It implies administrative reforms, measures, and money. There is capacity building needs, technical assistance. So this is the main challenge now. It's about trying to explain, it's a bit late, the rules and so on, catching up on what should have done before, providing technical assistance and international cooperation aid to put in place traceability systems and work with countries to make sure that the rules are well implemented. And I think that specifically speaking, there is also the dimension of small farmers. We need to make sure that all these rules do not penalize the weak actors in the chain. So in cocoa, for example, they already, small farmers in West Africa, they get so little money for their cocoa beans that now they say, oh, on top of being paid peanuts, now we need to comply with these rules and these traceability systems. That's unfair. So that's why it's not only about supporting traceability systems, but also about supporting initiatives and putting pressure on the private sector to make sure that they pay fair prices to farmers. Yes, thanks so much for telling us a little bit more about the impact on small farmers and workers. So a few final questions. We've kind of witnessed the emergence of the green fatigue sentiment, as it's called, as well as the rise of anti-green deals or more conservative voices in the public space over the recent months. How do you interpret these recent developments and what implications do you think this will have for the upcoming EU elections and how could it potentially shape the trajectory of EU trade and sustainable development policy in the next EU cycle? The first thing I would say is that it's politics. The European Parliament elections are approaching and therefore the different political parties are already trying to position themselves. Now, going into the content, I think there's been some negative reactions, for example, from farmer associations that some of the environmental requirements of the Green Deal are too much and that they don't make sense. But there is a parallelism with vis-a-vis -vis how EU farmers feel about EU environmental measures because they feel only the negative part of it. And I think we come back again to the issue that on sustainable agriculture, you cannot deal with the environmental pillar of sustainable development if you don't look at the economic pillar, namely the income for farmers. And then when it comes from a consumer point of view, because there has also been some skepticism or critiques on the EU Green Deal agenda, is that you also need to make sure that sustainable consumption is not a privilege of the well-off. It's easier said than done, but there's different policies like taxation, public procurement, competition law, to actually make sure that sustainable consumption becomes the norm, that it is companies that need to comply with these requirements, rather than actually always relying on consumers to make an economic effort to pay 
for the more virtuous or sustainable option? Do we need to promote sustainability? But what about the social impact? We need to make it work. Otherwise, if we lose political support for ambitious environmental and climate objectives, then we're really in trouble because we will not meet the climate change objectives that we have set out ourselves for. And this will have even more negative impacts in the mid and long term, in particular on the weakest actors in society. Thanks, Sergi. I especially appreciated the reframing, I feel, that you've suggested between taking away the burden from individual responsibility, especially in the socioeconomic context that we are in now, and rather focusing more on companies and business who, despite the fact that we've had the pandemic and inflation, have been making record profits. The last question I have for you, Sergi, is a few final words or words of encouragement, perhaps, that you would like to say to the younger generation of climate activists who seem to think that trade is not such a powerful tool in the fight against climate change. And perhaps also your opinion on this with your fair trade hat on. That's right. So trade and trade policy looks like a very technical topic. And it is. So the details of it are in trade agreements quite obscure and some difficult to read legislation. But I think it would be really a pity and a democratic deficit if young people would not pay attention to the decisions that are being taken in relation to trade policy. We need young people to share their views about what kind of cooperation we want to have with other countries. Do we want to have cooperation that simply allows us to have cheapest products from abroad, even if we know that they come from countries that do not respect human rights or countries that have forced labor? Or do we want actually to kind of a level playing field? And we give the message to our partner countries to say, we want to trade with you, but come on, there are some minimums that need to be respected. So this is something where we need young people to be engaged. We need people to be engaged as well in also saying, yes, trade can be a powerful tool to adapt and mitigate to climate change. Because if we all get cheaper, I don't know, solar panels, and clean tech that, of course, accelerates our actions against climate change. But also we need young people to call on politicians to say, careful, because trade can also have negative impacts. If our trade flows encourage deforestation or desertification of certain areas in the world, that also needs to be rethought, maybe. And therefore, we need kind of the energy, the attention, and the scrutiny of young people to make sure that trade policymakers are watched and are not left on their own and they need to be held accountable by the younger generations that, as we know, will be the ones that eventually will need to live with the consequences of kind of a trade system based on free trade and competition or a trade policy system based on cooperation, fair relations with our partners, and kind of an upwards trend to really ensure that trade policy is a tool to achieve sustainable development and our climate change objectives. I think that's a great empowering message to end on, to make sure that our listeners, especially our young climate activists, know that it's our responsibility to keep policymakers accountable, to make sure that we move towards a world that is fairer 
for all of us. Sarji, thanks so much for joining us and taking us through the EU's trade and sustainable development policies, including right now and in the future. It was a pleasure. Thanks to you. Dear listeners, thanks for listening to the second episode of Rethinking Europe, a podcast by Europe Jacques Delors. Europe Jacques Delors is a Brussels-based think tank dedicated to environmental sustainability in Europe. Thanks to a dynamic team of policy analysts, Europe Jacques Delors conducts high-level research on greening agri-food and trade, as well as ocean protection and governance. If you'd like to learn more about the EU's trade and sustainable development policies, check out the Greening Trades program on our website, www.europejacquesdelors.eu. And that's it for now. Goodbye.